If you could navigate to page 10 in your handouts with me, please. I am excited to continue to take you through the book of First Peter. So you want to go ahead and turn there. You'll see the text that is printed, and, and you should have this packet open. It really, really helps you because I'm going to be referencing it often, and we're going to be reading it together in just a moment. Uh, when I was about 10 years old, my greatest joy was taken away. Uh, when I was a boy, uh, at least for one whole summer anyway, my greatest joy in life was my bike. And I went everywhere with this thing. I had gotten it for Christmas the year before. It was one of those boy and his bike kind of relationships. <laughs> and I have a distinct memory because one day I had parked it in the front yard of my parents' house because it was raining and I couldn't ride my bike and I had to be inside. Anyway, my trauma story begins with being inside and I am staring out the window looking at this thing because I'm waiting for it to stop raining. And much to my horror, a stranger walks into my parents' yard and does one of these, looks over his left shoulder, looks over his right shoulder. I kid you not, he looks at me, who's looking at him through the window, and he decides, well, you're just a kid, you can't do anything about it. And he picks up my bike, and off he went. He shamelessly steals it right in front of me. And, I, you know, I'm, I don't know, I'm 10, I start to panic. I run outside, and here's the, talk about a sad picture. I run outside in the rain. I was wearing socks for some reason, I don't know why. <laughs> and I'm stood in the rain, in my socks, and I watched as my joy, the object of my joy, was actually taken away from me. Sad little kid story, right? The reason I share that is because the theme of our conference is witnesses. The theme of our conference is witnesses, but because, see, I know what it's like to feel robbed in life, Maybe you do too. Because I know what it's like to feel robbed in life, I find it way, 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 way more natural to be self-protective of my stuff rather than be a witness to anyone in the world. Maybe you have your own version of my sort of childhood trauma story. And I am sure if you live on planet Earth, you have at some point or another felt robbed. The main point of this message is that if you want to be a witness in the world, you need to have a joy that cannot be taken away. Could I say that again? The main point of this message is that if you want to be a witness in the world, if you want to live out being an elect exile, you need to begin by having a joy that cannot be taken away from you. That is precisely what we are about to see as we look and read and continue to exposit this wonderful book of the Bible. So would you pick up and read with me? It's on page 10. 
We're going to read from the book of 1 Peter. I'm going to read all the way down, you see, through verse 12. It's a very significant and substantial portion of text. Peter says, quote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now concerning this salvation, the, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. See, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, the context of those words was beautifully laid out for us last night. Mark did a wonderful job demonstrating that these words were authored by the apostle Peter. Remember Peter? And here we begin with the body of the letter. There's a, there's a lot of truth packed into, you know, a few verses. And what Peter is doing here, I want you to notice something very conspicuous, is he begins the body of the letter by drawing our attention to the invisible realities behind what it means to be a Christian. It can seem like Peter is all over the place, but look, there's a little bit of a spine that holds this passage together, because look at verse 5. In verse 5, he says, maybe you want to underline this word, he talks about a salvation that is ready. Do you know that's in verse 5? Maybe you want to underline the word salvation, ready salvation in verse 5. Well, if you jump down and look at verse 9, he says you're receiving the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. You can underline that word salvation again in verse 9. Well, wouldn't you know again in verse 10, he now goes on to, to close our section by saying concerning this salvation. Did you notice that? So maybe you could underline the third salvation. If you've done that, you'll see your salvation Verse 5, your salvation, verse 9, and your salvation, verse 10. That's Peter's thought units in this text that seems to be all over the place. Why does he do that? Well, I think here's what he's doing. He's saying living as an elect exile begins by understanding your salvation. See? If you want to be a witness in the world, if you want to know who you are and how to live as a Christian, here's step one. 
let the reader understand, you need to make much of your salvation. These people who would have read this letter in the first century before anything else, Peter says, you need to be captivated by what God has done for you if you want to live as an exile in the world. Or simply put another way, Peter is giving his readers a joy that cannot be taken away. And I'd love to show you that, and I'd love to pass that along to you as well. Let's take a long, hard look at this thing called salvation. Point number one, you'll see on your outlines, Peter first says, number one, your salvation, what's so special about it? Well, your salvation has been secured. Your salvation has been secured. Read again verse 3 with me. Look, look at your text. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It almost feels like an apostolic fire hydrant just got unleashed. I want you to take notice of a couple words. Not only Peter's mode and joy and, 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 and exaltation of Jesus, but I want you to take notice of the words born again. Born again, this is what he is telling his readers is true of them if they have come to know Christ. That's the hope of Jesus. Think about that. The hope of Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, is not that you're born this way. The hope of being a Christian is that through Jesus you are born again. And not only are you born again, you're born again to something. You're born again to or into a living hope. I want you to think about that for a little bit. He's saying you're born again into a living hope. Let me help you think about that. Have you ever seen a piece of fruit sit out on a counter for an extended period of time? Have you ever left a gallon of milk, God forbid, on your counter over winter break, hypothetically, like I did in college? Well, you know what happens? The fruit rots, the milk sours. That's just what happens when things sit out and they're left out. If you live in this world, you're familiar with the concept of rotting, which is why when you pick up a piece of fruit, you go, I wonder how long this has been sitting? How long has this been alive, so to speak? Things move in this world, left to themselves, increasingly towards ruin. That's the story of everything born, if you think about it. Everything born is getting old, everything grown becomes overgrown, and all of us in this world are moving one step closer to obsolescence. That's true of fruit, milk, and iPhones. Everything is moving towards being obsolete, old, and broken. Everything except Christians. See, Christians, Peter says, are born again into a living hope. Living hope means that life is not growing increasingly obsolete or getting worse and worse or rotting. What an amazing claim. He's saying life for the Christian is, 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 is one step closer to renewal every day through this new birth. That's an amazing claim that he just dropped. It's so amazing he not only says the claim, he substantiates the claim. Look at your outlines. He said, how could this possibly be true? We know that everything that sits out rots and everything born is going to die. Uh, 
except Christians. Why? Because, look, he substantiates the claim, born again, into a living hope, three reasons. Number one, because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is alive. Second half of verse three, he says, this happens through, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Friends, that's not subjective. Peter says that's historical. That the empty tomb is, if you look at it, it is a substantiation for the triumph of Jesus. See, Jesus really did die, and Jesus really did triumphantly rise again, never to die again. And what is Jesus doing at the moment? This is not an empty exercise. Let's think about this. Right now, Jesus has a real body, and his body is not aging. His back is not aching, and he is not growing increasingly irrelevant, and Jesus never gets a cold. That means a human being right now dwells in heaven, and therefore the pattern has been set, and since Jesus rose and he dwells upon high, you know what? The pattern is set, and your salvation and rising again is secure. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Here's the second reason why why we have a living hope. Living hope. Because Jesus is alive, but also because an inheritance is safe. An inheritance is safe. He says that in verse 4. Look at it. He says, you're to, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? What is an inheritance? Well, let me illustrate it for you. I love children in general. I'm glad that at Focus we have a lot of kids here because I I love children. I I feel delight and joy being around children. But here's an interesting distinction. One of the ways that you can distinguish children from my children, there are lots of ways, but here's one way. I keep stuff for my kids. I love children in general, but my children, I do this thing, like I keep birthday presents for them, I keep Christmas presents for them, and even maybe more significant, I keep bank accounts for them. And the apostle is saying a very similar thing about you, about me, about his readers, about his audience, about children, about children of God. Why is our salvation so secure? Because God keeps something for believers. Look at those words. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. That's like spoken word in the original language. What God has prepared for you, it is an inheritance, is something you come into. It is not something you earn, much like I keep things for my children that I delight to lavish on them. And he's saying the thing that God is keeping for you, it is unassailable. It is kept. See, Jesus is alive. That's why you're increasingly living in hope. Because an inheritance is safe. And number three, because because God's power guards. Because God's power guards. You all have seen superhero movies. You know, right now they're kind of a thing. Superhero movies are obsessed with power, aren't they? What's this person's power? How can they flex their authority or what their gift or ability is? I find it incredible to think about the power of God. The power of God 
What is it interested in doing? According to this passage, the power of God is turned towards people who believe in God. The power of God is turned towards guarding and keeping people for glory. That is a fascinating and an incredible thing to say. Do you see the substantiated claim? Friends, your salvation is secure. We can walk with a degree of, not arrogance, but security. Because think about Peter. Remember Peter, the man who wrote this? Think about the coward Peter who would eventually become the preacher-evangelist Peter. How, how does that kind of change happen? It happens with a past tense reason. Jesus rose from the dead. That's how that happened for Peter. It's happened for a future reason. Peter knew, well, my inheritance is safe. And it ha happened with a, a, a present tense reason. It's almost like when Peter got up to preach, he would remember that God's power is guarding me right now. Thus, he writes to these people, your salvation is safe. Do you want to live as an elect exile? Do you want to function in a world that is difficult and against the Christian hope? Here's step one. Plug into real joy, brothers and sisters. Because really, if you have a joy that can be taken away, that really is no joy at all, is there? If you have set your affection on something that really is shallow, fleeting, or not lasting, then you don't have joy. Plug into real joy because number one, your salvation has been secured. Your salvation has been secured. And yet, now here's the plot twist, if you're paying attention, maybe you would put your hand up in the back and ask a question. Because here's what Peter goes on, very masterfully, not only is your salvation secure, here's the second point, now Peter's gonna do a little bit of a mental transition to say your salvation is being worked out. Your salvation is being worked out. Look at verse six. So here's the plot twist, right? Point number two, he says, in this you rejoice. I just told you to do that. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Time out. Notice how the apostle Peter moves from the glorious security of being saved into the present reality of living in a broken world. Did you see what he just did? He just did a little bit of a switcheroo. Because if you say to somebody who is suffering, hey, rejoice, doesn't that feel shallow? Or couldn't that feel shallow? Maybe even as I was talking a moment ago and I said, plug into real joy, maybe some of you cynically thought, I know the heartbreak of what it is actually like to be alive. So this joy thing feels a little bit shallow, thank you very much. If that is you, I have news for you, because Peter's going to line you up to speak to you. Look at what he says. He says, in this you rejoice, though now, though right now. See, so salvation is a future thing, salvation is a future thing, but look, salvation is actually an everyday thing, right? Salvation is a here and now thing, and it is utterly important for these people and for you to know that salvation, being saved, is actually happening right now in the here and now every day, especially in the way that you handle your grief. 
Can I say that again? Most of us recognize that salvation maybe is, I got saved. That's not how Peter's talking about it here. That's true, but that's not his connotation. Right here, he's saying you are being saved in the everyday moments as you face and navigate heartache and grief. So he's going to give us insights about that. Look at what he says. Follow his train of thought here about here and now living. It can seem as if he's a little bit disconnected from the real world. Peter is far from it. He's not anything but disconnected. He's very, very much tuned in, and he gives us four insights about the present day. What does it mean that I have to work out my salvation now? Number one, our trials are varied. Did you hear Peter say that? Peter said that we're grieved by various trials. Put your thinking caps on there for a little bit. He says our trials are varied. He's saying that your trials are not anything like a children's book. I have a lot of kids' books at my house, right? I love kids' books because they're so simple. I read a kids' book before I came to focus. You know what it sounded like? The dog has lost his ball. And you're like, that's so sad. So page one, is the ball under the bed? And you're like, no, the ball is not under the bed. And page two is, is the ball in the yard? And it's, no, the ball is not in the yard. Well, where is the, is the ball in the house at all? Is the ball outside? In, and and the, the dog has lost his ball. That's how every children's book is. The narrative follows a single difficulty, a single trial that happens usually in the beginning and is resolved at the end. Every kid's book, so we love them. Disney movies, very, very similar. And what's Peter's point? Peter's saying, your life is not anything like that, is it? Life in this world is not like that. That's why he drops the word various. He says your life is, consists of various trials. The word literally means diversified trials or many flavored trials. You don't have a single thing to worry about at a time. No, no, no. See, the plot of real life is more like a man who's facing an exam and while, but he, he has to do the exam later on the day he's been studying for, but he's been standing at the graveside of a family member who, who, who has died. And while he's at the funeral, he thinks that, you know, his, his, his wife has been distant from him and he remembers he has a doctor's appointment next week to see if he has cancer. That's what real life is like. It's many flavored trials. It's many flavored trials, all at the same time, the complexity which is exhausting of living in a broken world. That's why the Bible says something like, every heart knows its own sorrow. It means you have trials that you, you could do your best to explain them to me, and I would say, I kind of get it, but I don't really get it. It's because every heart knows its own sorrow. Our trials are varied. But Peter says our time is short. That's the second insight. Look at verse 6. He says, you rejoice, though now, for a little while, you're grieved. So not only are our trials varied, wait a minute, look at where Peter adds that qualifier, little. He doesn't say, though now you're grieved. No, 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 he uses a qualifier. And he doesn't say, though now you have a little bit of grief. No, 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 he definitely does not do that. Peter puts the little qualifier not on the grief, he puts the little on the time. The reason for that is his, he, to his original audience, he doesn't downplay their suffering. What he's doing is he's upplaying their eternity. 
He's saying compared to the eternity that is ahead, you must realize, please, you must realize that your life right now comprises just a little bit of time. I know it's very difficult for me to convince you of that if you feel like you're in college and you have like an infinite amount of time, do not be deceived. But when you're in suffering, it almost feels like time slows down a little bit. I got the stomach bug months ago. Oh, I hate that thing. You know, when you stay up all night and your stomach feels like it's on the outside instead of the inside and, you, and, and whenever I am sick with some acute illness like that, here's what I think. Am I actually gonna be sick forever? Is this the new normal of existence? This is horrible. What time is it? Is it oh, it's only midnight. Okay. I thought I was here for five weeks. No, I've been here for an hour. Time seems to slow down in this moment of difficulty and trial. And Peter's saying, listen, you need to understand something about living in this world. Maybe time feels slow, but whatever it is that ails you, I need to say this respectfully. Whatever it is that ails you, whatever it is that, that has befallen you, that you are wrestling with this morning, please understand your time is short. And that might be hard to believe because you're used to Amazon Prime and instant delivery, that sort of thing, and streaming services. The Bible says your life is a breath. It's a vapor. It's a mist. Elect exile. Your salvation is being worked out. Right now, our trials are varied, our time is short. Number three, here's Peter's third insight about salvation. He says, our, your faith, our faith is tested. Our faith is tested. Maybe you, you know this, but I want you to look at verse seven and pick up on the word test that, that he uses to his audience. He says, this happens. We face grief so that the tested genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. The, the repetition there of the word test, do you notice that, is important to, to, to see. The repetition of the word test. I know finals are done, so please don't get jumpy, but Peter says life is always a test for the believer in Jesus. That life is full of tests. Not only does he repeat the word test, but he provides an illustration. His illustration is gold in a fire. Did you notice that? It's sort of a run-on sentence. It's difficult to translate and even to say, verse 7. He's, but here's, I believe, the apostle's point. He's saying, the preciousness of gold is most seen when the heat is turned up. The preciousness of gold is most seen when the heat is turned up. And countries all around the world stockpile this thing. Everybody knows that gold is precious. Gold is valuable. The US government has a reserve, several billion dollars worth of it, because gold is precious. We love gold, gold earrings. Okay, wait, but Peter is saying his argument, his point in bringing up gold that is being refined by the heat being turned up, he is saying that there's something that is actually more precious than gold through fire. The thing that is more precious than gold through fire is a Christian under fire. There's something that is more precious, that surpasses that, that, that is beyond the worth of gold that the US government has in reserve. It is when the believer in Jesus is persecuted because they worship God. Peter says, your salvation's being worked out. 
And that moment is a test for you to work it out. Do you know that? When you experience unexpected loss or unspeakable grief, the Bible says, and let me say this carefully, that is a test in, in the context in which your salvation can be worked out. There's this misconception out there in Christianity that if you make all the right decisions and you're a really nice moral person, you will be spared of difficulty in life. And friends, according to Peter, that is not true. Because you'll be persecuted if you worship Jesus. You'll experience loss under God's sovereign hand. And you will perhaps struggle at times to wonder if God is there, if he is deaf to your plea, and there will be times where you perhaps will struggle with hopelessness. And you need to know that, brothers and sisters, because the Bible says it is a test. It is a test of genuineness. When you shed tears and you trust in God, you are demonstrating that you really belong to God. Because your salvation at that moment in time, sometimes through tears, sometimes through sadness and wondering, God, are you there? That is the moment where you are demonstrating more precious than gold. Whatever heat comes. Our trials are varied, our time is short, our faith, our faith is tested. Last insight is this, it says our reward is to be determined. Our reward is to be determined. Wait a second, Peter had previously said that your inheritance is safe. And here, I want you to notice there's a slight difference. He's going to say that there is a reward which is still TBD. It's in verse 7. Look again with me at verse 7. Why do we face grief? Why is there unspeakable sorrow? Why are some of us just have more difficulty than others? It's not even. Well, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, the tested genuineness of your faith, How does that sentence end? May be found to result in, result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I have thought long and hard about that verse and what a glorious, glorious verse it is. You know that the best sports plays always get the instant replay, you know what I'm talking about? Whenever an amazing play happens, you know, they show it from five different angles in slow motion and all that, so all the experts can give it a standing ovation. That's how the sports world works. According to verse 7, what will get a standing ovation at the return of Jesus, at the revelation of Jesus, when the king of the universe, the judge of all men, shows up, verse 7 says, wait a minute, there is praise and honor and glory that awaits at the revelation of Jesus. There's praise, honor, there's a standing ovation that's going to happen. And you must see in verse 7, that is not talking about you primarily, in this context, giving praise to God, though you certainly will fall down and bow the knee to God. This is a place in the Bible where the apostle uniquely speaks about God appropriately giving honor and praise to you, which is a humbling, mouth-stopping thought. 
What is it that brings about a standing ovation from Jesus? And friends, it's your suffering. Do you know that? Or maybe we'd say it more precisely, it's your endurance of suffering. It's your saying that you want to follow God, come what may. It's living as an elect exile. It's embracing the exile part of your election. It's your endurance that gets God's reward. And while your inheritance is safe, please understand that your reward in heaven is being worked out on the basis of how you live very much right now. And it seems as if Peter is saying, Jesus, when he returns, rewards unjust suffering. Because if you have suffered unjustly, if, things, if life feels unfair, the king of the universe knows all about unfair. And there's something about your endurance of what feels unfair right now will turn the face of Jesus to you so that out of his mouth comes praise and honor and glory when he is revealed as the judge of all men. There's a poem on your sheet by a woman by the name of Martha Snell Nicholson. She says the same exact thing by way of illustration. Listen to what she says. She's writing a poem because she's a woman who knows a lot of suffering and inspired by First Peter and also uh, other parts of the New Testament, but particularly here, she writes about what suffering achieves in her life. Listen to how she describes the same thing. She says, I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne. And she says, I, and I begged him for one priceless gift which I could call my own. And I took the gift out of his hand. But as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn. And it has pierced my heart. This is a strange and a hurtful gift which thou hast given me. See, suffering. But he said, my child, I give good gifts and I gave my best to thee. I took it home and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. What is that woman beautifully, beautifully saying? She is saying, my suffering has allowed me more Jesus. That's what she's saying. That God's gift of grief sometimes to you is the thing that turns Jesus' face to you. And what an overwhelming thought that is. I don't know what it would be like. I admit, admittedly, this is speculation. But imagine the glorified, resurrected Jesus judging the sea of humanity. And it seems as if Peter is saying praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus, which means that somehow, some way, Christ exalted among the sea of humanity would walk over to you. And what an overwhelming experience it would be to meet the resurrected Jesus, the judge of all men. But yet, in, dis, despite your fearfulness of how you are and how you've lived, and despite your unworthiness to even look him in the eye, the resurrected Jesus looks at you and out of his mouth comes praise and honor and glory for you. Maybe that sounds like well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know. 
Maybe it sounds like, I noticed that time you were mocked for your faith. You thought nobody noticed. I noticed. The resurrected Jesus somehow will make all things right, including your unspoken grief, including your chronic illness, including the sense of shame that you thought, no, that didn't do anything, including the loss of a loved one, the unspeakable grief of the loss of a child or a family member, or all that has felt unfair for you, the Lord Jesus says praise and honor and glory has been reserved for you. Which is why no one in the world is ever getting away with anything. Again, think about the person who wrote this. This was Peter the coward who became Peter the preacher, and Peter the preacher became Peter the martyr. We think this man was crucified upside down, history tells us. How does that happen? That happens because his salvation was being worked out in that moment. I believe the Apostle Peter knew that there was no evil in this world that could befall him that God would not judge. And there was no injustice that God would not make right. And there was no deed done for God that God would not reward. That's what it means to be an elect exile. So I would plead with you again, brothers and sisters, plug into real joy. If you have a joy that can be taken away, that really is no joy at all. But come and see and savor your salvation. Your salvation is secure. Your salvation right now is being worked out. And lastly, and with this we'll close, Peter says, oh, and by the way, your salvation has an audience. This is a wondrous thought. Look at how he closes this thought unit. Verse 10, he picks up again. Follow along. He says, concerning this salvation. Round three, concerning this salvation. There's more. What does he say? The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. Oh, and he goes on. It was revealed that they were serving not themselves, but, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Oh, by the way, things into which angels long to look. What? Could you give me a little bit more on the angels? Like, what just happened? I wish we had time to explore the wonders of what those verses are saying. Peter spends the bulk of his time saying that there were ancient men and women. There were ancient people, prophets of old. Think about men like, oh, Ezekiel, or Isaiah, or Joel. And they sought after, they hungered for, they were captivated by something. You know what it was? It is all that we have and understand and discuss about Jesus today. That's what they were captivated by. That's the audience of your salvation. And not only is it that audience, he says there's this other audience. The gospel captures the attention of angelic beings. I don't precisely know what the apostle means by that, but there's something so worthy about Jesus dying. Come, behold the wondrous mystery, because angels love to behold it. It's like that restaurant that everyone wants to get into. 
It's like that place, that venue where all the tickets are sold out. You know, that destination that's booked years in advance. What on earth is worthy of the clamoring and longing of angels? It is our salvation. It's this truth that God has rescued sinners through the finished work of his son. That's the message of Jesus. Don't take it for granted. It is the crescendo of history. And brothers and sisters, you and I live out our salvation right now, even at focus on a much bigger stage than we realize This week when we serve one another and live out obedience to Jesus, maybe, maybe even as some of you who are on the fence about Jesus decide to trust Jesus for the first time and say, I submit to you, I give my life to you, God is glorified, evil is shamed, the prophet's work is fulfilled, and angels gasp and long to look into it. Do you realize what a precious gift your salvation is? Your salvation is secure, your salvation is being worked out, and your salvation, it has an audience. You see how Peter has exalted the work of Jesus? Do you see how he's reveling in the work of Jesus? Do you see how he's training our affections on what it means to, quote, be saved? So let me ask you, do you have this as your joy? Or do you have a joy that can be taken away? Why don't you spend a moment now just in quiet reflection as the worship team joins us and I'll close us in prayer in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, we bow to you with great thanks. Thank you for this salvation. We praise you for what you have done and ask that you would change us this week as we're exposed more and more to your word in this book of 1 Peter. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.